Hello, and welcome to Bookable Space. In this episode, we're joined by Debbie Burke. Debbie will be reading to us and talking to us about Until Proven Guilty, the seventh book in the Tawny Lindham thriller series. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Yvonne, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you could join us. Can you please tell us a bit about Until Proven Guilty? Sure. Um, It's the seventh book in the Tawny Lindholm Thrillers with Passion series. They are set in Montana, which is where I live. And there's two main characters. The heroine is Tawny Lindholm, who is a 50-something-year-old dyslexic widow who winds up working for a very high-powered attorney named Tillman Rosenbaum, who she can't understand why he would hire her because she doesn't have a lot of education. She's dyslexic. She doesn't know the law, but she is a very good listener. She's very smart, and she is good at putting pieces together. And so he's a six-foot-seven with a James Earl Jones voice and very intimidating, and so she said, why, why would you hire me? And he says, because I scare people and I need a counterbalance and I want you to talk to them and find out what secrets they're too afraid to tell me. And so that her superpower, if you will, is that she's a really good listener and she's very good at putting very disparate pieces together and solving, solving crimes that way. I also love that she's over 50 because so many times you don't get to read about like life after 50 and a, and a character who's just gets to be the central character in, you know, this series. I think that's amazing. At that point, you know, you have some life experience, you have a little bit of wisdom. You're not quite as insecure as you were in your twenties and thirties, you know, you're a little more settled and you've seen some real tragedy at that point. Generally, in Tawny's case, it was the death of her husband, who was quite a bit older, and she took care of him for a long time while he battled cancer and finally lost him. And then shortly after that is when the first book takes place. She's still grieving, and she is targeted by this very dashing, handsome terrorist who wants to disrupt the electrical grid and he's going to he's aiming at Hungry Horse Dam, which is about 30 miles from where I live. And she is a seasonal employee there. And he is going to set her up to take the fall for when he attacks the grid and causes, you know, causes the big blackout. And so that is the the premise of the first book in the series. And she's very naive at that point, very trusting, being a small town you know, small town Montana girl. And he's very worldly and sophisticated and takes advantage of that. And she really has a huge awakening when, you know, when she realizes what he's doing to her. And so it's, it's, she has evolved over the, the course of the seven books. And, and in some ways, I can't say grown up, but she's gotten wiser. Mm. Could we hear a bit from it? Could you read to us from Until Proven Guilty, please? Sure. Chapter one, Anywhere But Here. Tawny Lindholm Rosenbaum. By the way, spoiler alert, she winds up married to the attorney that she goes to work for. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that happens in about the fifth book. So, <laughs> but by the end of the second book, uh, they hate each other at the at the beginning. You know, when they first meet, and by the end of the second book, they're in bed together. And by the end of the you know by the fifth book, they're married. <laughs> so anyway, she they are still working together. And so, chapter one, anywhere but here. Tawny Lindholm Rosenbaum longed to be anywhere else except sitting at the defense table in a courtroom beside an accused rapist. At the opposite end of the table sat her husband, Tillman Rosenbaum, whom some people called the most famous attorney in Montana. Others called him the most notorious. His client, Claude Ledbetter, slouched in a chair between them. He wore an orange jail jumpsuit and rolled a ball of lint between his fingers. This preliminary hearing would determine whether or not he went on trial. At times like this, Tawny regretted that she worked as Tillman's assistant. She caught herself twisting the tail of her auburn French braid and quickly dropped her hand to her lap. Nervous gestures in court were as damaging as tells in a poker game. The victim, Amelia Kraft, sat in the witness box like a Marine at inspection. The 38-year-old mother of two worked at a convenience store. She fixed her stare on the county attorney, not daring a side glance at the man accused of raping her. Amelia's words carried strong in the courtroom. I was by myself on the late shift. The guy who was supposed to be working with me didn't show up. I'd done the closing procedures, turned out the lights, and set the alarm. I was walking in my car at the far end of the parking lot. It was real dark. There was a security light back there but somebody had shot the bulb out and it hasn't been replaced. Tawny glanced at Ledbetter. He appeared bored, still rolling the ball of lint. She looked past him to Tillman, half glasses down his nose. He made notes on a legal pad while he simultaneously studied his tablet, his dark gaze flicking back and forth between it and the woman on the stand. His agile mind multitasked while Tawny's dyslexia forced her to focus on only one task at a time. Amelia Kraft continued, I got to my car and saw it had a flat. I opened the trunk for the spare and was trying to call my husband on the cell. Then somebody jumped me from behind. He threw a jacket over my head. I was struggling, but he yanked something real tight around my neck. I couldn't breathe, couldn't scream. He dragged me into the vacant lot beside the store. Tawny side-eyed Ledbetter. Now he plucked a loose thread from the seam of his jumpsuit and added it to the lint ball. He threw me down on the ground on my stomach. Amelia's tone turned tight. Slammed his knee into my back. Hurt real bad like my ribs were broke. All his weight was crushing me. I was close to passing out. He yanked down my jeans and... For the first time during her testimony, Amelia faltered. County Attorney Mavis Doherty said, take your time. She picked up a box of tissues from the prosecution table and handed it to Amelia. The woman dabbed her eyes, blew her nose, then straightened in the witness chair, her shoulders again squared. In a clear, resolute voice, she said, he raped me. It went on for a couple of minutes. I'd start to pass out, but I forced myself to stay awake. Then all of a sudden he got off me and I heard his footsteps running away. Ledbetter crossed his legs, shifting closer to Tawny. His proximity tightened her muscles. She wanted to move her chair, but knew she shouldn't. Amelia went on. I sat up and tried to pull the jacket off my head, 
but it was real hard because he'd knotted the sleeves around my neck. Finally, I got them loose and I could breathe again. Then I saw headlights. My boss, the store manager, jumped out of his car and ran over to me. He grabbed my arms and asked if I was all right. I was still gasping for air. Then he took off running across the vacant lot. When he came back, he said the guy got away. He called 911. While we were waiting for the paramedics, he kept saying, you shouldn't have been by yourself, Amelia. Damn that Ricky. Ricky's the guy who was supposed to work with me that night. Then the rescue truck took me to the hospital. Thank you, Mrs. Kraft, said the county attorney. Do you need a few minutes before cross-examination? Amelia took a sip of water. I'm all right. Tillman rose from the defense table, six foot seven inches of intimidating lawyer. Even though the judge sat atop an elevated platform, Tillman could almost look him in the eye. He approached the witness box. His James Earl Jones baritone didn't boom as it normally did. He spoke quietly. Mrs. Kraft, you've been through a traumatic experience. I'll make my questions as brief as possible. She looked up at him and nodded. Did you ever see the face of the man who attacked you? No. Did he have any recognizable physical characteristics that you could identify? By that, I mean his height, weight, skin color, facial hair, or anything else unusual you saw. No, except he was heavy. When he shoved his knee in my back, it broke a rib. So you cannot identify the man who attacked you because you did not see him. Is that correct? He was behind me the whole time, and he had my head covered with a jacket. I couldn't see anything. Tillman reiterated, you never saw the man. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you, Mrs. Kraft. I'm sorry you went through this. No further questions. Tillman returned to his chair. Tillman always played close to the vest. Even though Tony performed investigative tasks, she often didn't know his strategy for a case until his closing statement. This time he had included her about the ace he planned to play. And I'll skip ahead just a little bit because this is running long. But essentially, Tillman destroys the evidence that the county attorney has prepared because of flawed DNA. And that means Claude Ledbetter walks out of, out of jail and Tawny is horrified. The judge sent the man a warning look and held up one hand. Sir, no outbursts. He flipped through the evidence list, a grin set to his mouth. Then he faced the spectators. I find this decision abhorrent to make, but I have no choice. The law is clear. The DNA evidence is flawed and must therefore be suppressed. He glowered at the county attorney. Without the DNA, Ms. Doherty, you have no case. Charges are dismissed. The defendant is released from custody. A plaintive animal cry rang out from Amelia. Please, God, no! Her husband held her, glaring at Ledbetter. The defendant smirked and flicked the ball of lint across the table. Tillman shot to his feet blocking Ledbetter's view of the victim. Tillman bent to whisper in his client's ear, one hand on his shoulder. Tawny caught the vice grip pinch of his fingers digging in. Ledbetter's face lost its smug expression and his eyes lowered. The judge left the bench and disappeared through the side door. The bailiff took charge and led Tillman's client to be processed out of jail. Tawny remained seated, arms crossed over her stomach that had begun to churn. Tillman gathered his papers and tablet into his briefcase and faced her. She knew her expression gave away her disgust and shame. She couldn't help it. He waited a few seconds. She didn't move. 
Without a word, he turned and left the courtroom to face the reporters on the sidewalk outside the Flathead County Justice Center. Justice Center, my ass, Tony thought. Wow. So what was it like returning to Tawny and Tillman? It's really interesting to see their the relationship grow over the series. But I'm really curious what it's like for you to return, like after you finish with them in you know, book six, and then they have another story to tell. They keep coming up with more stories for me. <laughs> I can't. It's It's interesting. I keep thinking, okay, this is going to be the last book. Well, okay, this is going to be the last book. Well, maybe this one will be no. And at this point, they are they are friends, and they just keep coming up with these interesting predicaments to get into. So, so I. But it is fun to see kind of the development of their their relationship. They do a lot of going back and forth, and it's very contentious at times, as you can tell from from that. They this. Story is actually three different plot lines, all connected by DNA. And in the second plot line, a young man shows up in town claiming to be the son of Tawny's first husband, whom she, you know, thought was absolutely 150% loyal. And she is shocked by that. And then there's a third case involving DNA where uh, one of Tillman's clients has been in prison and the evidence that put him there was faulty DNA claiming that he had uh, molested his five-year-old daughter. And so Tillman and Tawny are, she's mad at him because of this rapist getting off, but then they are trying to get this innocent man out of prison. And so they're having to work together. So it's, it's quite Mm -hmm. a, a busy, busy little, <laughs> little situation. Plus, Tawny's uh, old son and Tillman are trying to protect Tawny from this um, young man who shows up, you know, claiming to be the son of Tawny's late husband. So, wow, a lot going on. Could we have another reading, please? This is Tawny's son when he first encounters this young man who comes claiming to be the son of Tawny's husband. Chapter two, Crooked Toes. The stranger at the front door said, I'm your brother. Neil Lindholm, always wary after more than a decade soldiering in Afghanistan and Iraq, studied the young man before him who was shifting from one foot to the other. The boards creaked on the covered wooden porch of the old craftsman bungalow that belonged to Neil's mom, Tawny. The guy was white, in his mid-twenties, about ten years younger than Neil. Five-eight, a stale smell hovered around him. He wore a baseball cap with the loose hood of his sweatshirt pulled up over it. Pudgy, yet his skin looked flabby with an unhealthy yellowish tinge and no muscle tone likely a druggie whose brain would be oatmeal by the time he reached 40. My brother, huh, Neil said. What gives you that idea? He told me. The man pulled a phone from his sagging jeans and flicked the screen with a chubby, blunt finger. Here are DNA results, he held the screen up. The words were out of focus, but Neil wasn't about to turn his back on this dude to retrieve his readers from the breakfast bar. He started to close the door. Sorry, buddy, not interested. Wait, please. The man did not make a move to hold the door. Good thing, if he had, Neil would have flipped him over the portal into the lilac bushes. My name is Dave Palantine, the stranger continued. 
My mom is Barbara Palantine. My dad is Dwight Lindholm. Neil didn't slam the door on the weirdo, although he probably should have. Dwight Lindholm is dead. His tone stayed flat despite the pinch in his gut. Almost five years, and he still thought of his dad every single day. I know, said the kid. I found his obituary on Google. Sorry. I mean, if I'd known sooner, I'd have, well, you know, no family resemblance that Neil could see. His mom, Tawny, always remarked the older Neil got, the more he looked like his dad. Barrel-chested, brown hair, square jaw. In contrast, Neil's younger sister, Emma, was a double for their mom, tall, willowy, with long, copper-colored hair and smiling eyes. Neil knew for certain there were only two Lindholm kids, himself and Emma. What the hell do you want, Neil asked. The punk peered down at grubby sandals, bare toes sticking out between leather straps, a crooked big toe on his left foot. A frisson of doubt skittered up Neil's back. Dad had a similar twisted toe. So did Neil. Made it hard to find boots that fit. Neil's toes curled inside his leather moccasins. Nah, couldn't be. The punk's greenish-brown eyes flipped side to side. Same color as his sister's. You looking for money? Neil pulled a five from his pocket. Here, now get lost. The man shook his head, one rounded shoulder lifting. My mom just died. I don't have any other family left. Guess you could say I'm searching. Search someplace else. Neil closed the door and turned the deadbolt. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. What was this weirdo scam? Back inside the house at the breakfast bar, Neil scrawled the license number of the car on a notepad. Then he put on his readers and studied the paper the man had left, Dave Palantine, a phone number with a 509 area code in Washington State. A dad really cheated on mom? This dude would upset her big time. Neil had to keep Palantine away from his mom. He flicked on his device and entered Palantine's number in a reverse directory lookup site. Name matched the number, Spokane address. Neil grabbed a moose drill beer from the refrigerator and settled on the bar stool to dig into Dave Palantine's profile. For 17 bucks, he could access online criminal records. He tapped that link. So this series is set in the rugged scenery of Montana, and you live in Montana. So I'm curious, um, I guess a couple of things. One, what it's like to write Montana and also, what sort of research do you do to bring it to life for readers like me who've never been there? Well, I, I've lived here for more than 30 years. And so I'm not not a native, but getting close at this point. <laughs> so, um, and I've been through some pretty wicked blizzards. I have, you know, blizzards and snowstorms that cause problems. I have uh, a lot of mountain activities like there's in the sixth book flight to forever it takes place in a fire lookout on top of a mountain in the bob marshall wilderness and that's a very remote area there's no cell service there's no roads you hike in there if you want to take anything with you you have to pack it with you and so you are very much on your own and have to be self-reliant and self-sufficient to survive. And so that story was a lot of fun to research because I didn't, 
I'm I'm smart enough to not try going on a 30 mile hike anymore with a big backpack. I mean, I'm a hiker, but I'm not that much of a hiker. But I became friends with a forest retired forest ranger who had uh, worked in fire lookouts for more than 30 years, and he gave me some wonderful tips about the what it is like living up there. And things like what happens when lightning strikes the fire lookout, which was, of course, I had to incorporate into the book as a lightning <laughs> strike. You know, and so there's a lot of really interesting people who live here. And I can normally find someone in whatever area I need expertise on. I can normally connect with somebody. I have a an attorney friend who is my resource for all things Tillman. (laughs) And um, I have another friend who's a retired emergency room doctor. And she tells me things like, well, what happens with hypothermia? You know what? And that's something that kills a lot of people here is, is hypothermia. And what happens with various gunshot wounds and poisons. And, uh, you know, so, so she's my great resource for the, you know, the death events that happen in my books because they are they are thrillers and people do die and sometimes they're being murdered and sometimes it's an accident and sometimes it's you know suicide so it's you know there's a lot of different a lot of opportunities to kill people in Montana <laughs> so I love it because you did the question about like what what, what stories are possible in Montana? So you've already answered that one. There's plenty of opportunities to kill people in Montana. And because it is so remote and there are area, large areas with no cell service, period. And that's very hard for most people who live in an urban area to understand. But you really cannot call 911. You have to either defend yourself or you know, if the bear is coming, you got to climb a tree. You know, so there's oh. there's things that you have to worry about. I mean, I don't have bears in my front yard, but some people do around here. You know, so it's it is a real different environment living so close to nature and being a part of natural events and weather events that you have no control over. And and it's it's quite intimidating sometimes, you know, when the wind is blowing 70 miles an hour and it's 30 below, it's, you know, you literally can freeze to death in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Or you can drown somebody in a glacial lake. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and then it freezes over and you're like... <laughs> Yeah. Hey, what happened? Hey, there's uh, Lake McDonald up in Glacier Park is so cold and so deep that you put a body in there and it will never come back up. (laughs) (laughs) I know people always say, gee, you look like such a nice lady. Why why are you killing all these people like this? And how do you do your research for it? And you're like, Well, one of the things I did do some years ago was my husband and I took the Sheriff Citizens Academy class, which was like, we took a a course and that uh, showed us kind of the inner workings of the Sheriff's Department here. We got a tour of the jail. We got, uh, we got to see the 911 center. We got to drive cop cars real fast and and through an obstacle course. And so, uh, 
And we learned how detectives work and how the Child Protective Service works. And so that was a real good insight into the law enforcement community. And so I was able to, you know, I have contacts there. And I actually wrote some articles about the sheriff's department because I'm also a journalist and I write nonfiction articles. So so I wrote some articles. And so I, I do, that's another thing where I get research is being a writer for several senior newspapers. I meet people who all over Montana and Idaho who have done some really interesting things. And I make these really interesting contacts. And sometimes they, an idea from one of those contacts will turn into a story idea for fiction. Wonderful. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. Okay. The, this is Neil Tony's son has the supposed son has shown up at a family dinner, which has caused a great deal of consternation for Tawny. And so afterwards, Neil is taking him away, driving him back to his motel and says, so what do you want to make you go away? Neil asked, money or dope? You look overdue for a fix. You got me wrong, bro. Dave Palantine huddled in the passenger seat of the Wrangler while Neil drove south on the highway towards Foy's Junction and the slummy motel. I'm not your bro, dude. Palantine stayed quiet for a few moments watching the open fields. Tractors were pulling hay rakes to form windrows to dry before bailing. Clouds of dust billowed like tan fog. Finally, he spoke again. Our sister's real sweet. Her and I talked all night. And Tawny's daughter is kind of a ditz. And she has, she's the one who the supposed son made contact with and she's the one who brings the son to the family dinner to mm. surprise. So is this a surprise you said? Uh, very much a surprise. <laughs> so, yeah. Neil silently cursed his own carelessness. The location tracker had showed Palantine's Honda parked in Columbia Falls for hours. Neil figured he was shacked up. He should have recognized the coordinates were around the corner from the Lucky Dragon restaurant, which is where the daughter works. Look, asshole, she isn't your sister and I'm not your brother. Why are you here? No more bullshit. Palantine sulked in silence. Closed up in the car with him, Neil noticed the musty reek of old clothes from a thrift store. Another odd, toxic odor Neil couldn't identify hung on Palantine's breath. Neil rolled down his window in spite of the blowing dust from the hanging operations. I'm not a criminal, Palantine muttered. No, you're not good enough to rate being called a criminal. You're a tweaker whose busts aren't even felonies, just piss-ant misdemeanor crap. Neil reeled off the reports Tillman had gathered on Palantine. You used a stolen credit card to charge a whopping 57 bucks before you got caught. You shoplifted so often at the Northtown Mall they banned you. But they didn't bother to pursue charges because you weren't worth their time to go to court. You eat at restaurants and skip out without paying. You know who gets charged for that? The server. My sister, your new best friend forever, waits tables. How'd you feel if a punk like that did that to her? I was hungry. Then go to the food bank or hold up a cardboard sign at the on-ramp. Don't steal from people working hard to get by. Neil wanted to backhand the jerk. You can't get a job and you can't make it as a thief. Pretty pathetic. 
in a small voice, Palantine said, they were presents from my mom. What? Stuff I took from sexy secrets and body luxury. She spent all her money taking care of me and didn't have enough to dress nice and smell good. What a devoted son. Emma's right. You and your stepdad are mean. See, that's a good reason right there. You don't want to be any part of this family. Go back to Spokane and leave us alone. Another sullen silence as Palantine's pudgy fingers fiddled with the drawstring of his hoodie. Finally said, I'm not on drugs anymore. I mean, not that kind. Everything I take now is prescription. Just like Elvis, huh? I'm sick, man. I got to take 12 different medications every day. You're breaking my heart. Palantine ignored Neil's sarcasm and rambled on. A year ago, I weighed 300. Now I'm down to 160. Doctors say I need operations because my kidneys are failing. I'm going to have to go on dialysis. Hey, you got any smokes, man? Was this guy for real? Didn't you hear the news? Smoking's bad for your health. Palantine shunched his shoulders. Doctors made me quit, but man, I need one now. You're out of luck. Neil assessed him. Rapid weight loss explained the loose, flabby skin. The bad breath might mean organ failure. Maybe the guy was telling the truth, at least about this. What do you think my family's supposed to do for you? My mom's dead. I don't have anybody else. For what? To give you a sponge bath? Empty your urinal? Palantine huddled lower in the seat. Emma says your mom's nice, real kind. Neil's jaw clenched. Why do you want to hurt the nice, kind lady by accusing her dead husband of cheating on her? She never did anything to you. So, Debbie, where can we buy the book? Um, I uh, am on Amazon. um, And also, you can look it up under Draft to Digital. The the whole series is available on Amazon. You can just Google Tawny Lindholm Thrillers and it will come up. And that's also if you are a print book reader and like a like a paper copy, you can order it through your favorite independent bookstore, which I like to support indie bookstores. They they are the backbone of our business as writers. Yeah. It's been so wonderful to have you here and to hear more about Tawny, to hear her story, to hear you reading has been such a treat. It sounds like a real adventure and um, I'm really looking forward to reading it. So thank you so much for, for being my guest. And thank it was a joy. Thank you, Yvonne. You're, you're just a delight. And I'm so glad to have met you through the Author's Guild and have this chance to get to know you a little bit. Oh, wonderful. Thank you 